0: Let's all open our Bibles today to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8. We're in a sermon series called Church on the Move. Chapter 1 of Acts, we see the disciples of Jesus doing what Jesus told them to do, which was to wait, to hunker down in Jerusalem until he sent his Holy Spirit to them. He does that in chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes, that's the beginning of the church. And Peter stands up to preach that day filled with the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That spills over in chapter 3 into the temple courtyards and complex. And the preaching of the gospel is continuing to go on. People are being healed. This results in chapter 4 with some of the religious leaders beginning to put pressure on the disciples. In fact, that pressure is amped up in chapter 5 and they begin to place the disciples, the apostles, under arrest. In chapter 6, there's a need that has emerged in the church. Certain widows aren't being cared for as they should, and we see the rise up of deacons in the church. And by the way, if you are an ordained man and would like to attend a deacon ordination council today, we're doing that at 4 o'clock. And so you'd be welcome to join us here today and be a part of that great time. We've got, I think, maybe five guys that the church has voted to move into the deacon ministry, and they'll be pursuing ordination tonight. One of those original deacons was Stephen. In chapter 7 of the book of Acts, Stephen uh, begins to stand up and preach the truth about Jesus, and consequently, he is martyred. He is killed. He is what we would say is the first Christian martyr of the church, and because of that, then in chapter 8, the church begins to scatter, which was the plan of God all along. They're not just staying in Jerusalem, but now they're going to Judea and Samaria, and Samaria is exactly where they go in chapter 8. We see Philip leading the charge to go into Samaria. And those people there, they're not full Jews. They're half Gentile, half Jew. So now the gospel is going beyond you. And it's beginning to go now into places where the Gentiles live. And Philip is preaching the gospel. This great awakening, revival if you will, breaks out in Samaria. And that's where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We pick up there in verse 26 of chapter 8. So Philip's in the middle of this great awakening in Samaria and it says, As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now that sounds like a strange thing for the angel of the Lord to come And to say to Philip, because the action is in Samaria. God is at work in Samaria. There are crowds there. People want to hear the gospel. And Philip has been God's choice servant to share the truth of the gospel there in Samaria. But now the Lord is instructing Philip, I want you to leave where the action is. I want you to turn away from where the crowds are. I want you to leave that place. And I want you to get on the road less traveled. It's the desert road. There's, there's no crowds on that road. Philip's got to be thinking there's tremendous opportunity for gospel advancement right here in Samaria. And I can't imagine that there's any opportunities for gospel advancement on an old dirt road in the middle of nowhere. That's exactly what God's calling Philip to do. Verse 27 says, so he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia. Think about that. What in the world? What were the chances of this happening? A eunuch of great authority under the Kandake. She's like the Pharaoh, if you will. Kandakes were the queens of Ethiopia. Tatum, there you go. I told you it was coming. All right, it's pretty cool. She's a pretty cool historical character to check out. So Philip's going down there and he meets the treasure of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Kandake, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And he's now returning to Ethiopia, seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. So so this is a high-ranking Ethiopian fish official under the queen of Ethiopia at that time. He's one of the highest ranking officials in Ethiopia. He's the secretary of the treasury, right? You might say And although he's not Jewish by birth, he's Ethiopian by birth. Somewhere in the course of his life, he has converted his religion to Judaism. He is worshiping the God of the Jews. And so he's now traveled to Jerusalem to do that. And he's returning home back to Ethiopia. He's probably in a pretty impressive caravan as we read here that he's actually riding in a chariot. I mean, this is a man that's got great means, great resources, great authority from his country. In verse 29, the Holy Spirit Said to Philip, go over and walk alongside the carriage. And verse 30 says, Philip ran over. I love that. Philip's the kind of guy that when the Holy Spirit says go, he just runs. Let me remind you, church, delayed obedience is disobedience. If God's calling you to go today, I'd start running. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Philip doesn't delay enthusiastically, joyfully. He runs over and he hears the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Think about that. He, he hears this man from Ethiopia reading the Jewish scriptures, reading a Jewish prophet by the name of Isaiah. And Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage And sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shearers. He did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. He's reading the book of Isaiah. In particular he's reading the 53rd chapter. Of the book of Isaiah. In verse 34 it says the eunuch asked Philip. Tell me. Was the prophet talking about himself or somebody else? Now watch this. So beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Now how do you start in the Old Testament with Isaiah telling people about Jesus? Because Jesus doesn't show up until we get to the New Testament, right? Wrong! The Grace Life veterans are all shouting, Wrong! If you're new to Grace Life, maybe nobody's told you, but I'm going to tell you this today. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus from beginning to end, except in the Old Testament, His name is Yahweh. It's Jesus when we come to the New Testament. God introduces Himself by that name Yahweh for the very first time in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is on the back side of the wilderness. He's been a fugitive now for 40 years or so. And Exodus chapter 3 verse 13 says, But Moses protested. God is in this burning bush, right? And he's telling Moses, you got to go to Pharaoh and tell him, Let my people go. That's what's happening. And Moses doesn't want to go. So he's protesting. If I, can, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, They're going to ask me, What's his name? So what should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. The the word Yahweh in Hebrews, tucked away in there. And he says, say this to the people of Israel, I am, that's Yahweh, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. I am. What does that mean, I am? It means he is not the God of the past. He's not the God of the future. He is the God of the present tense. It means he has no beginning. It means he has no end. It means that he is self-existing. He doesn't have to rely on anybody else for his existence. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't have to rely on anybody else for anything. He is the ever-present, unchangeable I am. Then in Exodus chapter 6, this is what God says to Moses. Verse 2, God said to Moses, I am Yahweh. In other words, I am, I am. The Lord. And when you see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's the way the English translators translate the word Yahweh. So here's what God said to Moses. I am, I am, the I am. you Get that? Moses is who I am. I am, I am, the I am. Verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, I am to them, but now I'm telling you my name. And you don't have to read the Old Testament very long to figure out that Yahweh, or in your English Bible, Lord, in all caps, whoever that is, is the main character of the Old Testament. From Genesis chapter 2 all the way through the Old Testament, you're going to find that name Yahweh, or Lord, in all caps, over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. That's the main character, no doubt about it, right? Let me me give you some examples. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The prophet says, A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord. See that? All caps. Yahweh. Clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. When you read that, if you grew up in Sunday school, that might sound like something that you read in the New Testament. In John chapter 1, verse 22. Then they said to him, they're talking to John the Baptist here. Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And here's what John the Baptist does. He quotes Isaiah the prophet. He says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of Yahweh. As Isaiah the prophet has said. So John the Baptist just seemed to indicate... This one that the prophet said that the way, would may be straight, the way would be made straight for him, Yahweh. John the Baptist is saying, I'm the guy who's come to make the way straight for him. He's Yahweh in the Old Testament. He's Jesus in the New. Here's another place we see this. Isaiah chapter 44, same, same book in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, your Redeemer and the one who forms you from the womb, I The Lord, Yahweh, and the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. So so Yahweh, Lord, is the maker of everything, right? But then in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, verse 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And verse 3, all things came into being through him. Isaiah just said all things came to being through Yahweh. John's saying everything came into being through the Word. Could that possibly be the same person? And he says, apart from Him, nothing came into being that has not come into being. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Well, who was the Word? Skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh. Who is that? It's none other than Jesus. And He dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. So here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing John the Baptist say, Yahweh in the Old Testament, that's Jesus. And I'm hearing John the disciples say, Yahweh in the Old Testament, that's Jesus. Here's another example. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me... Every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord, Yahweh, our righteousness and strength, men will come to him. So the Lord, Yahweh, is speaking here in Isaiah chapter 45, and he says, before me, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess and then Paul says this in the New Testament. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Isaiah said at the name of Yahweh every knee is going to bow. Paul says at the name of Jesus every knee is going to bow. Could it be the same person? It is absolutely the same person. Every knee will bow those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that, watch this, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So here, here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing uh, John the Baptist say, Yahweh is Jesus. I'm hearing John say, Yahweh is Jesus. I'm hearing Paul say, Yahweh is Jesus. And we get to Joel chapter 2, verse 32. It says, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, will be delivered. But then Paul says in Romans chapter 10, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he's talking about Jesus. So Paul is saying Yahweh is Jesus. Here's another Isaiah forty three eleven: I, even I, am the Lord, Yahweh. And there is no Savior besides me. Yahweh is Savior. And there is none other. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 4. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, by which became the chief cornerstone. Watch it. And there is salvation in no one else. Isaiah said there's salvation in nobody but Yahweh. Peter just said there's salvation in nobody but Jesus. Could it possibly be the same person? There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men. Peter says, by which we must be saved. So John the Baptist is going, hey, this Yahweh in the Old Testament, he's Jesus in the New. John the disciple is going, this Yahweh in the Old Testament, he's Jesus in the New. Paul is going, Yahweh in the Old Testament, he's Jesus in the New. Peter's going, Yahweh in the Old Testament, that's Jesus in the New. Here's another one, John chapter 6, verse 46. What does Jesus say? I mean, it's good to know what John thought, and John the Baptist thought, and Peter thought, and Paul thought. What's Jesus say? John chapter 6, verse 46. Not that anyone, this is Jesus talking, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who's from God. He has seen the Father. So Jesus says nobody has seen the Father except Jesus. Well, then who did Isaiah see in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah 6? Isaiah says, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. Well, Jesus just said nobody's seen the Father, but Jesus, so who did Isaiah see? He saw the Lord, the King, Yahweh. He saw the Son of God. He saw Jesus. That's what Jesus said. Here's what Jesus says, John 8, 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, talking about Himself, then you will know that I am He. Only He didn't say the word He there. Most of your Bibles, you'll see that they're either italicized, or there's a little letter next to it, there's some brackets there, or there's a note down at the bottom of that page of your Bible. This because the English translators are trying to tell us we had to insert a pronoun there to make this make sense in the English, because Jesus wasn't saying, I am He. Jesus was saying, Yahweh, I am that I am. And he said, I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. In verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He just spoke that name that the Jews weren't allowed to speak, that holy name for God. and He's claiming to be him, and therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. Why did they pick up stones to throw at him? Because he just claimed to be Yahweh. He just claimed to be the God of their scriptures. He just said it. And now they want to stone him. Look at John 18, verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. This is in the garden of Gethsemane, the night he's arrested. And he said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. Only he wasn't going, This is me. You know what he said, right? He spoke the name. He claimed to be Yahweh. And Judas was also standing there. And verse 6 says, So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. You know why they fell to the ground? Not because he went, I'm Jesus, I'm who you guys want to come to rest. He spoke the name that's above every name. He spoke that name, Yahweh, and the power knocked them out. And then look at this. Then Jesus dies on the cross and he's raised again, right? Luke chapter 24, verse 25. It's resurrection night. It's Sunday night. Nobody really knows what to think yet. And there's two guys, two disciples that are leaving Jerusalem. They're going home to Emmaus. I think it's about seven miles maybe, not too far. And they're, going, they're on this journey home. And all of a sudden, this guy starts walking with them. And they start talking. And the guy's Jesus, but they don't know it's Jesus. Really cool story. And here's what happens. Luke 24, 25. And Jesus said to them, "'O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken.'" Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Watch this. And then beginning with Moses. If you opened up your Bible and you began with Moses, do you know where you would begin? Genesis. Moses wrote, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so Jesus is about to take these brothers on a Bible study. And the Bible says that he starts the Bible study with Moses and then goes all the way through the prophets. In other words, he covered the entire Old Testament on that walk to Emmaus. And watch this. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. It's all about Jesus. Yahweh is Jesus. Here's what that means, church. Remember that timeline I do with the kids? In the beginning, God created two people. What their name? Blah, 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 blah. What that means is... In Genesis chapter 2, that's Jesus creating everything. What that means is in Genesis chapter 3, when they sin against God, that's Jesus. Go back and read it. It's Yahweh. It's Lord in all caps. Go check it. It's Jesus himself that steps into the garden and preaches the first gospel. He tells them that from the seed of this woman is going to come one who's going to crush this serpent's head. That's Jesus. Genesis chapter 7. In the timeline, I talk about Noah and the ark, right? Genesis chapter 7 is none other than Jesus himself who shuts the door of the ark. Think about that. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham three things, right? What are they? Lots of children, lots of land, and a blessing to the nation. Only it wasn't just God. It is God in all three parts for sure. But in Genesis chapter 12, it says that it is the Lord. It's Jesus promising Abraham. These things. And it's Jesus in the story of Isaac and Jacob. Remember the story where Isaac is put up there on the altar? It's actually Jesus providing a sacrifice as a substitute for Isaac. Can you wrap your brain around the symbolism of that moment? And it's Jesus when Joseph is in a pit and to a palace and in a prison. It's Jesus who remembers him and is weaving together his story. In Exodus, it's Jesus in Exodus 3 that calls Moses and it's Jesus that rains down the plagues and it's Jesus that gives them the instructions about the Passover lamb. Think about that. It is the lamb of God telling them to take a lamb and kill that lamb and put its blood on two rugged wooden beams, both vertically and horizontally. That's Jesus telling them that. And it's Jesus in Exodus chapter 14 leading them across the Red Sea. It's Jesus through 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness that's providing for them and protecting them. In Joshua chapter 1, it's Jesus having a conversation with Joshua and he says, you be strong and courageous. And we could go on and on through Israel's history and through all of Israel's prophets. You say, how do you know we could go? Because that's what Jesus did. This This is the Bible study he led about all things concerning himself. And the whole story of Jesus dealing with this broken world, it comes to its climax in Revelation chapter 19. Be encouraged, weary saints, because Revelation 19 is right around the corner. After the world, under the control of Satan and his Antichrist, is defeated by the power of God. Heaven is going to erupt in praise with shouts. And this is going to be the word that heaven shouts. Hallelujah! And the the operative piece of that word is Yah at the end. Because that's short for Yahweh. And Hillel on the front of that means to boast in or to praise. And when this world begins to come right side up. Heaven is going to erupt and say boast in Yahweh. Hallelujah. Praise be to Yahweh. And then 1911 of Revelation says, Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The Antichrist came earlier in the book on a white horse because he's a fake, he's a phony, but here's the real deal. And the one sitting on it's called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus. The whole book's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's Jesus who created this world. It's Jesus who stepped into it when it was broken. It's Jesus who made promises to make it all right again. And it's Jesus who's been keeping those promises and will keep those promises until the day that he makes all things new. You say, why are you telling us this, Pastor? Because I want you to know what Philip told the Ethiopian in the chariot. He he says, okay, you want to know who's in Isaiah chapter 53? It's Jesus. And so let let me tell you, sir, this whole story. I think this is much like what Philip shared with the Ethiopian gentleman on that day. And on that day, the story of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus and the power of Jesus changed this African man's life. And the gospel goes to another continent. Look at verse 36. So here's Philip and this Ethiopian fellow in this chariot. And they're just having the most incredible Bible study about Jesus. And as they rode along, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And he ordered the carriage to stop. And they went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. That's weird. This is the last you're going to hear of Philip, by the way, for a while. You're going to hear of him one more time, deeper on into the book of Acts, because there's this guy named Saul. He was a terrorist, but God changed his life, and he becomes this great missionary. And at one point, he's looped back around from having told a whole lot of people about Jesus, and he ends up staying at Philip's house. And finding some rest. Think about that. In Acts 8, Philip was trying to get away from Saul. Several chapters later, he's letting him sleep in the guest room. We'll get there. Just keep coming to church and we'll get there. Or maybe we can talk about it in glory. I don't, I'd be better, but whatever. It's amazing. Philip gets snatched away. The eunuch never saw him again. They're, they're reunited now, by the way. But But watch this. The unit never saw him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north at the town, town of Ozetas, and he preached the good news there in every town along the way until he came to Caesarea, which is where Paul's going to find him and find a place to rest one day. So the church is on the move in Acts chapter 8 and it's moved in now to, to Africa. Jesus is building his church, and I, I just want to remind you this morning, because maybe you, you're forgetting this, he's still building his church. He, he was building it all this last week. And if he doesn't come today, he's going to be building it all this week. And he's already said the gates of hell aren't going to stop it. I promise you there is no terrorist organization that is stopping him from building his church in Afghanistan. And it is being built in Afghanistan. And in Iran and in China and Nigeria. It is being built. He, he does not back up in the face of terrorist organizations who hate Christians. In fact, he's been known to save a terrorist and turn him into a missionary. I want you to be encouraged by this today. But I also want to challenge you with something, okay? Look at verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again but went on his way rejoicing. Would you just underline, circle? This is what this new believer does. He goes away rejoicing. He had just come to the realization that Jesus has this unstoppable plan for the world and that Jesus has invited him to be a part of that plan. And the result of understanding that and embracing that is that he goes away rejoicing. And here's the challenge for us today. We're not rejoicing well. We're not rejoicing much or often because we seem to be forgetting that Jesus has an unstoppable plan for this world. Yes, this world, this jacked up, crazy, messed up, dark, hateful, violent confused whack job of a world he's got an unstoppable plan for this world and he's invited me and you through his finished work on the cross to be a part of it we seem to be forgetting that church we have got to got to got to get the joy of the lord back i promise you there's not going to be a more compelling witness to the world of who jesus is than his sons and his daughters who are deliriously joyful in him when everything around us is falling apart. That'll be the greatest proof to a watching world that we serve a risen Lord. And as we walk in that joy, and here's the way I've just been thinking about it for myself this week, I'm finding that right now especially, I can't live life up at 10,000 feet. It's just too much to see. And it's, it, it, it's not blessing my soul. And, and I'm, I'm finding that he's not called me to live up there at 10,000 feet. But he's, he's called me to be down here on ground level. Where his word is a lamp to my feet. And a light to my path. And he's teaching me to just not be in a hurry. When I'm around you guys, just walk a little slower. Be where my feet are. Be fully present. Right here, right now, in this moment. And when we do that, I think that's where we find the strength of the Lord. And I think when we live that way, that's when we're walking in the fullness of joy in the Lord. And it's that being present in His strength and in His joy step by step that God is going to change one life after another. If I could flip the world right side up today like that, I would, but I can't. And neither can you. If there's a little kid here today that just needs a hug from his pastor. I can do that. You've got a coworker that just needs a word of encouragement. You can do that. Somebody just needs to know that they're not forgotten. They're being prayed for. You can do that. Being right where you are. Right here. Right now. I'm I'm running out of time, but I want to give you three things today to help you fight for your joy. All right? And to try to get your joy back. Write them down. Here we go. Number one, dump selfishness. Dump selfishness. It is a joy killer. Being a giver always beats Being a taker. Get your focus on this. Okay, Jesus, down here, street level, who do you want me to love? Who do you want me to bless? Who do you want me to encourage? Show me how to do that. What am I supposed to do, God? Living with my eyes wide open at sea level, not at 10,000 feet. Some of you are near the point of giving up because your eyes are wide open at an elevation that God did not create you to live at. Eyes wide open right here on the ground where you see people face to face and eye to eye, just like Jesus did. He was high and he came low and he met us where we were and he lived his perfect sinless life in the fullness of joy. Right down here in the weeds, focusing on giving to and serving others is a key to joy. So dump selfishness. Number two, dump resentment. Dump it. Resentment. There's a lot of resentment in the room today. Dump it. It's a joy killer. Being a healer always beats being a herder. In my life, I've never seen so many people choosing so many sides to so many different things in the world. And the division and the vitriol and the anger and the resentment is awful. I'm watching families Divide and friends divide and churches, churches divide. That's a joy killer. That kind of resentment. Don't do that. Don't seek to hurt others. Seek to be used by God to bring healing to others. What does that mean? It means you listen to them. You don't have to agree. Seek to understand. Forgive them. And sometimes love them by simply choosing to overlook Some things. Here's the third thing. Let's get our joy back. That means we've got to dump fear. Got to dump it. It's a joy killer. Focusing on God's power beats focusing on problems. Now let me say this, because we are living in a day where there's a whole bunch of fear. Understandably so. Not all fear is sinful. For example, yesterday... I go down to my chicken coop, around the back of it is the nesting box, have a latch, open the latch, pull the door down, and I'm about to reach in, but there's a five-foot snake coiled up right there where the eggs are supposed to be. And fear hit me in that moment, and I promise you that wasn't a sinful fear, (laughs) right? Fear's a good thing, can be a good thing that God gives us. And I was afraid. I was greatly afraid. The sin probably happened after I was afraid. And I know some of you snake lovers, it's a chicken snake. They're good snakes. No, if they don't have legs, they're dead. That's the rule. Red and yellow, kill a fella. They don't have legs, I kill them. That's, the, that's my rhyme. That's what I got. Oh, Mr. No Shoulders has no place of refuge at my place. All right? <laughs> so not all fear is sinful. But when fear becomes sinful, we got to dump it. You say, how do I know if my fear has become sinful? Fear has become sinful when we allow that to dominate our minds instead of the truth of God's Word. When we find ourselves meditating on the fear more than we're meditating on the Word of God, then we've tipped over into the arena of sinful fear. And the problem with that is when that happens, that fear isn't driving us to God. It's driving us away from God. It's stealing our attention and our affections for God. Let me remind you, God is in control. I tell you that all the time. And you're like, yeah, good stuff happened. He's God. What about when bad stuff happens? Isn't he still God? Here's what Ecclesiastes says, chapter 7, verse 14. Enjoy prosperity while you can. Enjoy those good days while you got them. But when the hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Both good days and bad days equally pass through His sovereign hands to us. And often, I'm not going to understand His purpose. Y'all walk that path yet in life? Don't understand God. Why this is going on. Don't get the purpose. And when I don't understand his purpose, I can still find peace and power because I have his presence. That makes all the difference in the world. He's with me in the good days and he's with me on the bad days. And what that means is because he's with me, really, when it's all said and done, Every day is a good day, because I was dead in my sin, separated from him. And now that he never leaves me, never forsakes me, in the grand scheme of things, I can't have a bad day. Bad things can happen, but it's not a bad day, because the King, the Lord, Yahweh, Jesus is with me. Situations are going to arise that cause those feelings of fear and worry and anxiety to creep in. And here's the deal. Whatever we set our minds on is going to be the guide to navigate us through that time. And I'm telling you, fear and worry make terrible guides. They are terrible shepherds, you have another choice. David writes in Psalm 23, 1, the, see that? It's not just Lord, is it? It's all caps, isn't it? Not up there? Yeah, NLT kind of messed that up sometimes. In mine, it's all caps. Trust me, it's all caps. We'll go look at the Hebrew and I'll show you. Here's what David's saying. Yahweh is my shepherd. Jesus, Jesus is my shepherd. I have all that I need. Jesus lets me rest in green meadows. Jesus leads me beside peaceful streams. Jesus renews my strength. Jesus guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. And I love this. David can't just keep talking about Jesus here. He starts talking to Jesus, and he says, For you, Jesus, are close beside me. Your rod and your staff, they protect me and they comfort me. Scary stuff's going to come, but you got to decide what's, what or who's going to be your guide through it. For example, Friday, I spent some time in the home of a gentleman who is facing a frightening health scare. Yeah, it's frightening. It's scary. There's fear. That's real. That's snake in the nesting box kind of stuff. When your wall is covered with pictures of your grandchildren and your wife of nearly 50 years is sitting beside you, it's a big deal. And you know what he said Friday? He said, I'm not afraid. He's. I'm not afraid because I know God's in control and his will's going to be done and that's all that I want. Now, do I believe for a minute that he's never afraid? Not for a minute. I know that there are moments that the waves of fear come crashing down on the shore of that man's mind. But then because his eyes are on the Lord, just as quickly, they recede back out to sea. Because he's choosing who's going to shepherd me through this. Who's going to guide me through this? My my emotions, the the way I feel, or the good shepherd, Yahweh, Jesus. See, the Ethiopian man in Acts chapter 8, he met the good shepherd that day. And he went away doing what? Remember? Rejoicing. If you're here today as a Christian and your joy is weak or your joy is gone, here's good news your shepherd ain't. He's with you. He is Yahweh, He is Lord, He is Jesus. From let there be light, to it is finished, to behold, I am making all things new. That's our shepherd. With our eyes on him and his unstoppable plan for his kingdom, we don't have to be slaves anymore to sin. We don't have to be slaves anymore to selfishness. We don't have to be slaves anymore to resentment. We don't have to be slaves anymore to fear. With our eyes on him and his unstoppable plan for his kingdom, the joy of the Lord will be our strength. Let's pray. God, help us. We want to just get our feet firmly planted in the paths of righteousness that you have laid out before us. You have not designed us to be the play-by-play commentators of all things in the world from The press box. You have called us into the paths of righteousness that we are called to walk for your namesake. And even when those paths lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because our shepherd is with us. God, would you... Restore the joy of our salvation to us, to your people, to your church. Set us free from chains of sin and selfishness and resentment and fear. And set us free to be like that Ethiopian who went home with joy in his heart. We're going to go home Here in a little bit May we go With the joy of the Lord in our heart I know you're tired church I know you're weary I know you are And we could put a whole bunch of words In those blanks today I know it Say, Lord, today would you plant my feet on solid ground and open my eyes to see people like you see them? Use me, Lord, in just one person's life, in just one moment today. Right now in your heart, and your mind, would you just, you know that hot air balloon, right, that goes up real high like that? I, I think they start to turn down the heat on it, and then it starts kind of descending, right? Would, would you just right now say, Lord, would you turn down the heat in my mind? Would you turn down the heat in my heart and just bring me back down to where it matters? because you're the great I am. You're the God of this moment. Not yesterday or tomorrow, the great I am right here right now in this moment in this place and that's where I want my feet to be, Jesus, where you are. Just say, Lord Jesus, just change me today. Fill me with you and fill me with your joy. I want to go home rejoicing. Today. I want to go to work tomorrow. I want to go to school tomorrow rejoicing. I want people to see you in my life. So Holy Spirit, turn the heat down that I've been cranking up. Just cool it down and bring me down to where I'm supposed to be today. In Jesus' name, I want to invite you to stand. Let's worship The great I am. Walk in the freedom that he's provided to us. To represent him in this world with fullness of joy.